Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 256. Uh, hope everybody's having a good day. Uh, we don't have too many more classes. Um, Fafis lecture I normally do is just one, but I decided to split into two. So uh, today's podcast lecture might be a little bit shorter than ordinarily. So anyway, I'll give you a chance right now to go on to um, Moodle to get your PowerPoint. Also, I should mention, I posted this stuff about the test uh, for your final exam. The final exam is going to be on Friday, uh, May 8th. Uh, ordinarily, it would be from 8 to 10 a.m. if we were in person. However, we're not. So you're going to get a, a two-hour testing window. Sorry, you're going to get a longer than two-hour testing window, about a six-hour testing window, uh, from 8 to 2 p.m. on Friday, May 8th. Uh, you only get one attempt, and you have two hours to finish the exam. Uh, that's going to be like it was whenever we were in uh, class together. If Friday doesn't work for you because you have work or something like that, you need to let me know now. Uh, let me know as soon as possible. You can't take it on that Friday. Um, we're we're kind of getting near you know administrative deadlines. Um, I can do things before May 8th, but I really can't do anything after May 8th. So please let me know, and we can work around this. Um, like I said, this is administrative stuff. Like, this is, you know, this is the, the university, so I, I can't really do anything about that. So that said, uh, let's go to the PowerPoint for Towards Modern Day. Now, last class, we talked a little bit about the election of 1992. Remember, it was a three-way race with uh, Ross Perot coming in. The guy gets elected, if you go over one slide, is Bill Clinton. There's Bill Clinton raising the roof. Um, Trying to go with kind of funny pictures this time around. Uh, Clinton comes in with a lot of strengths and weaknesses. Uh, he is the third youngest president in history. Uh, only Teddy Roosevelt and JFK were younger than Bill Clinton when he comes into office. He's in his, um, gosh, like mid to late 40s. I want to say he's like 46, 47, whenever he becomes president. Uh, Clinton is also a very good speaker. He, he's kind of a charmer. Uh, there are comparisons to Ronald Reagan in that regard, that he's able to speak quite well. And he's really trying to appeal to centrist Democrats and working class slash middle class individuals. Uh, despite being a Democrat, Bill Clinton is very much a Southern Democrat. Southern Democrats tend to be more moderate and actually more conservative. Uh, you could argue that Bill Clinton might be argued to be the most successful Republican president of all time. Yes, I said Republican, even though he was a Democrat, mainly because how conservative he is. He doesn't do too, too much that's super liberal. That being said, Bill Clinton definitely has uh, weaknesses. Uh, one of his big weaknesses is that as governor of Arkansas, um, which Arkansas is a state, it's actually just north of us, um, due north of us here in Louisiana, he has no foreign policy experience. Uh, likewise, he has never been involved in Congress or been involved in any sort of state house. Pretty much he's only been in administrative positions. Uh, executive positions. You know, he was attorney general, and then he was governor of Arkansas. So coming in with no foreign policy experience and also no uh, congressional experience, furthermore, Bill Clinton's one of the first presidents in quite a while, I believe since Franklin Roosevelt, to not have any military experience. So those are three things that generally presidents come in having, and it's something seen as needed. Also, uh, Clinton also reneges on several campaign promises. Uh, while he's campaigning, he says he's going to you know, cut the taxes on the middle class. Uh, he can't do that early on because the recession is going on. There's a deficit. Uh, to, to help with the deficit, he has to you know, 
actually keep taxes on the middle class. Uh, he'll later on actually cut taxes on the middle class, but that's after 1994 when the Republicans come back into Congress. In addition, one of his campaign promises is um, basically to allow uh, gay people to serve openly in the military. Uh, this is not to say that gay people have never been in the military before. There have been gay people in the military for quite a while. However, generally they cannot serve openly. You have things like the Lavender Scare, um, where they try to drum out you know, homosexuals and positions of power, uh, the idea being that it might undermine morale or something like that. Clinton says during the campaign, it's really stupid for us to get rid of gay soldiers or kick them out. You know, they're good soldiers. We're, you know, court marshals cost money. Uh, that kind of gets a firewall thrown against it by people like Colin Powell, who's chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, gay rights groups want him to go further than he Clinton's comfortable doing. Uh, some right-wing organizations say that it will undermine um, soldiers' morale. Ultimately, ultimately, Clinton has to compromise with a policy called Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, where basically gay people can serve the military, their commanding officers can't ask them about their sexual orientation, likewise, they can't tell anybody their sexual orientation. Definitely a compromise, definitely things that people don't care for too much. Uh, there's also rumors of sex scandals and general distrust of uh, Clinton as, as a whole when it comes to moral issues. I should mention this is when conservative talk radio gets really big. The idea of uh, alternative uh, conservative slash Republican media. Probably the most important name for that around this time period is Rush Limbaugh, who Rush Limbaugh is actually still around, uh, still doing radio stuff. Uh, thanks in large part to Clinton's proclivities and all these rumors, uh, Republican media is able to get very, very strong and becomes much more broad. Go over one side. You will see uh, Bill Clinton's main uh, campaign element was the economy. As you recall, uh, there was a recession going on in 1992 during the election. It pretty much crippled uh, George H.W. Bush's candidacy. Remember, about a year or so, he was in the high 90s for approval rating. Now, because of the recession, because of the economy, it's not going too well. Uh, Clinton's uh, catchphrase is, it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, comma, stupid. Basically, you know, when it comes to why should you be elected president, well, it's the economy, stupid. That's, that's the only thing we need to work on is the economy. Uh, Clinton proposes higher taxes on corporations and the wealthiest individuals coupled with spending cuts. Um, if you just go for a pure balance sheet way, that could be a way to lower a deficit, is if you raise taxes and you also cut spending. Um, you know, if you just think about it for yourself, if you cut your monthly expenses, but also, you know, raise more money by taking on a second job or something, you're, you could get out of debt like that, that could solve your money issues. It may not be comfortable, but it might help. Uh, it's a very contested bill. Uh, nobody really wants to go on the record for raising taxes. Uh, it barely passes the House and Senate. Uh, Clinton does have a Democratic House and Senate in this time period. Uh, it is able to pass this this tax hike. Uh, generally, tax hikes are not very popular when it comes to uh, you know elections, when it comes to voters. Uh, voters typically don't like paying more taxes. However, it ends up working okay, uh, mainly because there's low energy prices and low interest rates. So even though corporations are paying more money in taxes, uh, they're having lower expenditures because energy is really cheap, and also uh, the price of borrowing money is also fairly cheap as well. I should mention, uh, this is kind of an undercurrent when we talk about the 90s, uh, the domestic economy in the 1990s is very good. 
just phenomenally very good. Uh, the 90s economy is something the U.S. hasn't seen since maybe the 50s. Um, I know we're in a bit of a... Well, well, thanks to Corona, we're in some sort of weird economic thing right now. But even before Corona, we had a pretty good economy. It was nowhere near as good as the 90s. Uh, Clinton also has a tough time getting NAFTA passed. That's the North America Free Trade Agreement. Uh, if you see in the picture, there's NAFTA in the background. Uh, this is actually something that was negotiated by his predecessor, George H.W. Uh, Bush. It's actually one of the reasons why Ross Perot is able to get a lot of uh, traction against George H.W. Bush. Uh, free trade is something that economists have always liked. Uh, it's something that basically it removes barriers by way of uh, you know tariffs and things like that between trading between two countries. Something the U.S. had done for quite a while in Europe to try to get rid of the uh, Soviet influence. It was a Cold War tactic. Uh, now the Cold War is over, though, and so they're talking about maybe we should have free trade within North America itself. So that'd be the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. The idea being that companies can build stuff in either country and sell stuff in either country with no penalties. Uh, this is controversial. Uh, opponents of this bill and people like Ross Perot said that it would cause labor to move away from the United States. Uh, companies were, you know, if they have no reason not to go to Mexico where labor is cheaper, they're going to go to Mexico. This is going to lose a lot of manufacturing jobs. A lot of Americans might lose their jobs. Likewise, uh, some of them, these might be imported supplies that the U.S. needs and we can't get domestically. In addition, they said the market is going to be flooded with cheap goods. Uh, cheaper things are going to come into the country. It's going to undermine American companies. Um, now, cheap goods are good for consumers. Generally, people like paying, pay, uh, paying for cheap goods. However, there could be a counter-effect of it might impact uh, American manufacturing. Uh, both do happen. Uh, both do indeed happen. Uh, this is seen as a betrayal by labor union people and also Southerners who had previously very much supported Clinton. Uh, Clinton is able to become president due in large part to his support from labor unions and also people from the South, uh, both of whom are harmed immensely by this bill, by NAFTA. Um, also, another issue is health care. Go over one slide. Uh, health care costs were skyrocketing near the 90s, and Clinton wants to make health insurance available for the whole country, arguing that it's going to make things cheaper for the poor and the unemployed. Uh, the idea of universal health care is something that's had a history in the U.S., uh, FDR talked about doing it for Social Security. Uh, Truman tried to do it. He couldn't get it with Congress. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's able to get part of it with Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, other Western countries have had some sort of universal health care for a while. Uh, England has, has the national health system. That's pretty popular, the NHS. Uh, Germany's had it since it was founded in the you know, 1860s, 1870s. However, um, healthcare is complicated, and Clinton picks his wife, Hillary, to kind of spearhead the task force. Um, she, this is a bit of a backfire. This definitely backfires. Uh, Hillary Clinton is, um, you know, she's an intelligent woman. She's, you know, she was a lawyer. She, she's done quite a bit of things. However, she had no experience with healthcare in this time period. And so it was looked as kind of a cronyism appointment. Likewise, Hillary Clinton can be a divisive figure. Um, if you don't know, she ran for president not too long ago, and some people don't care for her very much. Uh, also, healthcare is complicated. Anything to do with healthcare is very complicated. Uh, there are no simple answers for healthcare. 
And so this bill, it doesn't really have any chance of passing, mainly because of the complications of it. It's not well liked. It dies uh, in late 94, about, uh, I think it's like September of August or August of 1994. Uh, it's voted down in Congress. It's seen as Bill Clinton arguing for big government, which is something that otherwise goes against what he does for most of his politics. Uh, like I said, this health care bill dies about two months before the midterm elections in 94. Uh, in 94, uh, there are a huge, huge, huge uh, overturn for Republicans. Republicans get uh, 32 governorships, and they get both houses of Congress. And this is the first time that Republicans have control of the House in 42 years. For 42 years, Democrats have pretty much run the House of Representatives. Now, Republicans have taken over. Uh, the first Republican Speaker of the House in 42 years, if you go over one slide, you'll see him, Newt Gingrich. Uh, Newt Gingrich is from, go uh, is from Governor. He's from Georgia. He's not a governor. Uh, he spearheads something called the Contract with America. Uh, generally speaking, most congressional, uh, conventional wisdom, if you're a political party, is to treat congressional elections local. Don't make them a national issue. Don't make it a national referendum. Uh, Gingrich does a bit different. He makes this national. He makes this Contract with America, this kind of national issue. Uh, the Contract with America is kind of a, a slate of different bills uh, revolving around a whole bunch of different things. He says, within the first hundred days, we're going to get all this stuff passed. We're going to work really hard for the country, and we're going to get all these things done because that's what the voters want. And it's actually a very, very effective um, tactic. It's a very effective tactic. Like I said, uh, Republicans get a lot of um, seats. It's, it's huge. They get both houses of Congress. Uh, likewise, there's a new group. Uh, remember last time we talked about the uh, uh, moral majority? Uh, there's a new group, kind of a replacement to the moral majority, called the Christian Coalition. Uh, the Christian Coalition is linking, quote, traditional family values with a radically downsized government. It's not just arguing that a government should be more moral. It says that a government should be much smaller. This is religion getting even more partisan. Uh, this is something which previously religion, as we talked about, was political at times, but not very partisan. Uh, this is pretty much religion doubling down uh, with partisanship. Now, despite all the pomp, uh, Newt Gingrich actually wasn't very popular with long-standing Republicans. Uh, for instance, Bob Dole, who was the uh, Senate Majority Leader, uh, doesn't like him very much, finds him a little too brash, finds him being a little bit too political, too win at all cost. Uh, for instance, Gingrich advocates two government shutdowns in order to pass his agenda and also get budget stuff passed. This really backfires against Gingrich. Uh, Clinton comes off looking pretty good out after this. Uh, Gingrich comes off looking uh, less popular. Ultimately, Gingrich becomes less popular than Clinton as the 90s goes on. Um, Clinton always had pretty good approval numbers, despite what's about to happen. Uh, 1996 is a fairly easy campaign for Bill Clinton. Um, Clinton's fairly popular. There's, despite a growing polarization within the country, uh, Republicans nominate Bob Dole. If you go over one slide, you'll see Bob Dole. Uh, Bob Dole is a longtime senator from Kansas. He's a uh, World War II veteran. He's seen as very old, which he is. He's in his late 60s. He's seen as not very charismatic. Uh, 
Clinton has major, majorly good economy and no foreign policies crises. Um, I think I might talk about Bosnia a little bit later. In fact, I will talk about Bosnia a little bit later. But by and large, Clinton doesn't have that much going on with foreign policy. Uh, it's a fairly easy uh, election for Clinton, but it does show a deep rift within the country. Uh, Clinton is a polarizing figure for people on the right. Uh, people on the right, despite the good economy, never like Clinton very much. Uh, they really skewer him on his moral, uh, you know, his moral lapses. Uh, lots of accusations of him being corrupt. Uh, in addition, Ross Perot runs again in 1996. However, he is not as big of a factor. In 1992, he gets about 20% of the popular vote. Uh, in 1996, I figure he gets about 8 uh, Basically, the economy got better, and Perot's message really didn't resonate. Uh, also, what Clinton is able to pass, especially after 1994, is a lot of stuff that Republicans do like. So pretty much the only thing that Bob Dole can, you know, you know, he, you know Clinton passes tax cuts and uh, reduces the size of the government, all things that Republicans like. So pretty much the only thing Bob Dole can campaign against Clinton on is the moral issue. Um, Clinton has a fairly easy victory this time around. Um, like I said, Perot's a, really a non-factor in this. Uh, what does Bob Dole do after this? It's actually kind of funny. Uh, Bob Dole later on becomes a spokesperson for Viagra. I can't make this junk up. If you go over one slide, you'll see uh, the ad for Viagra. Uh, I should mention the economy uh, in a little bit more detail. The economy is very good in the 90s. A uh, large part to the Cold War is over. Uh, the Cold War is over, and basically the U.S. seems like top dog. There's no competition. Everything is, is going up. Uh, we have budget surpluses during this time. Surpluses! If we are in class and make a big deal about how crazy it is for the, you know, the U.S. federal government to have surpluses, that means we're taking more money in in taxes than we were you know, spending. And we were even doing tax cuts, and we were still getting surpluses. Uh, stock prices keep going up in the 90s. Um, there's, stocks are pretty good in the 90s. Uh, and additionally, there's a lot of growth in computers and e-commerce. Uh, the Internet is growing. is becoming more part of everyday life. Uh, I was a kid during the 90s. I remember the first time my parents got email. Uh, that, that was a really big deal. I, I remember the first time going on the Internet. I'll never forget my godfather. I went over to his house, and he was all excited because he was like, look, look, this is a card catalog for a library in France. It's like I'm in a library in France. And I'm like, okay, that's cool, whatever. I, I did not understand why he was so excited, but I appreciate for him that he was very animated about that. Uh, internet and e-commerce, they seem like bottomless pits uh, to which you can throw money into, and you get a good return for your investment. Uh, globalization also becomes big. This one, uh, some people might say it's a gift and a curse. Uh Economies start growing across borders, like things like NAFTA, lack of the Soviet Union, free trade pretty much becomes the standard for most of the world. Uh, this results in cheaper products. This results in cheaper products, which consumer likes. But it also results in some labor being outsourced to um, outside of the United States. Uh, outsourcing can indeed become an issue. Let's talk about foreign politics for a while. Foreign policy in the 1990s, uh, there's probably Bill Clinton's biggest foreign policy accomplishment, which is getting... The president of Israel and Yasser Arafat, the guy in charge of Palestine, to shake hands. That's about all that ever came out of it. Um, <laughs> that, that's about all that happens. About a year after this, the Israeli prime minister, the guy on the uh, sorry, the Israeli president Rabin, he is assassinated. He is assassinated. Uh, he's replaced by Benjamin Netanyahu, 
Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is actually still around in Israel. I think he's still the, uh, the Prime Minister or President of Israel. Uh, he's much more hardline, less willing to deal with the Palestinians. Rabina is actually assassinated by uh, like hardline Israelis who don't like the idea of him uh, negotiating with the Palestinians. Uh, the other big problem, and this is a very complicated one that I'm not going to try to explain in too much depth, mainly because it is very complicated and it's very hard to get a grasp on, is what's going on in the Balkans. Uh, like I said, it's a very complicated issue. Uh, this mainly comes out of the fallout from the Cold War. In places like Eastern Europe, uh, which is where the Balkans and Bosnia are located, there's a lot of different countries there, uh, there were a lot of different ethnic groups that were kind of kept in line because the Soviets. The Soviets were in power. These ethnic groups don't like each other, but so long as the Soviets are around, they will play nice and not try to kill each other. That doesn't happen in Bosnia once the Soviets are gone. In the power vacuum, you have the Serbs, you have the, uh, the Croats, you have the... Uh, oh, God, there's... Um, there's, there's Muslims in there. There's all sorts of different groups in there. Just, just, It's a whole mess of different little ethnic groups that don't like each other. And as you can see from the picture, ethnic cleansing starts. Ethnic cleansing starts between, in Bosnia and Croatia. Uh, the U.S. has sent in as part of NATO to keep the peace. Uh, this is not a, it's a... I mean, the U.S. is there for a while, but it's nothing like the Persian Gulf War, which is like rah-rah America. This one just kind of exists. You know, soldiers do serve there. Uh, it's never a very major war on the home front. Uh, this flares up again. If you go over one slide, you'll see Slobodan Milosevic. Slobodan Milosevic is the head of some of the Serbs. Uh, he orders the ethnic cleansing of Albanian Muslims. Uh, this could have been a lot worse. However, Russia, who had been supporting Slobodan Milosevic, announces they are going to withdraw support. Uh, as soon as they withdraw support, uh, the, he gets arrested for war crimes, of which he is very much guilty. Uh, I believe he has been uh, executed since this happened. Um, I know he's alive for a while. I literally just paused this to look it up. Uh, turns out he is dead. He was not executed. However, he died while in prison for war crimes as part of the, you know, the tribunal, so... Uh, like I said, this is not a major issue for most Americans. Uh, they're not too aware of it. Uh, well, the thing people are aware of in America is the scandal machine. If you go over one slide, I love this picture of Bill Clinton because he just looks like, oh my God, Tully just said scandal machine. Uh, that's my horrible Bill Clinton impression. Uh, Clinton had always had some scandals since he came to national attention. There's always talk about what was going on with Bill Clinton. Um particularly with when it comes to ladies. Uh, as governor of Arkansas, he was accused of messing around with a number of different ladies. Uh, Jennifer Flowers is one. Paula Jones is another. Uh, there are some various lawsuits about this. Uh, another one which actually had more legs was Whitewater. Now, I, I assure you at some point during this podcast, I'm going to accidentally say Watergate. It's two different scandals. I mean Whitewater. Uh, Whitewater was a planned resort in Arkansas on the White River, that ends up being fraud. Uh, basically, the people who were trying to build this resort on the White River in Arkansas, which uh, actually, when I lived in Arkansas, I was a kid, I lived in Arkansas for a little while, uh, we went on the White River. I remember falling in and my family boating off without me for a little while. <laughs> Till finally they heard me scream and my mom jumped in to get me. So, yeah, White River. Hate that place. Um, but it's, it's a nice little river in Arkansas. And they were going to build a resort, a hotel resort, 
Uh, Bill Clinton and Hillary and also some of uh, Hillary Clinton's co-workers at her law firm put some money in the uh, resort as an investment. However, they pulled out their money fairly early. They didn't lose money as part of the fraud. Uh, there were some questions upon whether they knew about it, whether they profited off of it, that sort of thing. It got to the point where this thing had so much legs that a uh, special prosecutor was appointed. An independent counsel is appointed to see if the Clintons knew anything about the fraudulent nature. Um, ordinarily, I'd have to explain what an independent counsel was, but y'all remember the Mueller report. So, yeah, it's just like, uh, just like Mueller, except this guy's name was Ken Starr. Uh, Ken Starr is a former judge. He's also a former conservative Republican. Well, not former, still conservative Republican. Uh, he's kind of uh, seen as a partisan hire. So when Starr is doing this investigation, he's given a lot of leeway to like go into the White House and start subpoenaing all sorts of stuff. He doesn't over undercover anything about the land deal. In fact, the land deal looks pretty clean for Clinton. Uh, nothing too egregious happened there. Uh, he does find ample evidence, though, that Bill Clinton is having an affair in the White House with his intern, with one of his interns. If you go over one more slide, you will see Monica Lewinsky. Uh, that picture was everywhere in 1998. Uh, when it comes to Bill Clinton and his affairs, uh, probably a, my favorite story about this is something James Carville says. Uh, James Carville was Clinton's campaign advisor in the 1992 election. Uh, Carville's a Louisiana guy. He's called the Raging Cajun. Uh, he's from, like, Donaldsonville, um, Iberville Parish area, like St. Gabriel, that area right there. So some of y'all might be from there. Anyway, uh, you know, Carville joins the Clinton campaign fairly early, and he pretty much asked Clinton straight up, you know, during the campaign for 1992, like, hey, um, have you cheated on your wife? Or is there anything about your sexual dealings, that sort of thing? And Clinton's response is just amazing. Clinton's response is, well... They haven't caught me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if anybody asks, like, hey, you know, did you steal something? And you say, hey, they never caught me. Or did you cheat on your wife? And they say you never caught me. That's code for you totally did it. And, uh, yeah. Uh, the, uh, Ken Starr finds evidence between 1995 and 1997. Uh, Bill Clinton, who was having an affair with Monica Lewinsky, who was an intern in the White House. If you go over one more slide, you will see a picture of the two of them together. Uh, there was really no way of denying that they knew each other. I don't know who the guy in the background is, but he's got a great mustache and a cheesy smile. Uh, Clinton denies the charge. Clinton denies the charge. Uh, in 1998, if you go one more slide, you will see uh, him going on TV and states, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. That's my horrible Clinton impression. Uh, also, as part of a deposition for a lawsuit for, from Paula Jones, he has to go under oath. And under oath, he says he did not have sex with Monica Lewinsky. Also, he encourages Monica Lewinsky, who is also deputized for the... Uh, also, you know, also has to give a deposition for this, uh, to say that they didn't have an affair as well. Now, this becomes the scandal of 1998. Um, like I said, I was a kid in the 90s. I was a middle schooler in this time period. Pretty much for the entire year of 1998, um, it was nothing but the Lewinsky scandal. That's when it broke. Uh, Lewinsky ultimately testifies in front of a federal grand jury about this, and she admits, yes, they, they messed around. Uh, Clinton actually admits as well under, under oath that they had, i got to get the quote here, inappropriate, intimate physical contact. All right, so, quote, intimate... In a, 
inappropriate, intimate physical contact, but not sex. So he's like, it, it wasn't technically a lie. You know, we, we did intimate things, but it was not sex. Uh, the Star Report actually backs this up. Um, it pretty much says, you know, they messed around, but they didn't have, like, vaginal intercourse. But they'd have done pretty much anything else. Now, that is not against the law. You know, cheating on your wife is not against the law. What is against the law is lying about it under oath and also encouraging somebody else to lie about it. Uh, that could be perjury, and that could be obstruction of justice. And pretty much Clinton has lied under oath. This seems like a way to finally nail Clinton. Uh, a large portion of the country had never liked Clinton. Uh, part of the reason why Republicans were able to get into power in 1994 in the Congress is that, you know, Clinton was not very popular. Uh, this scandal really changes nobody's mind on Clinton. Clinton's defenders like, come on, it was just a, you know, it was just an affair. You know, even though he lied under oath, it was understandable why he lied under oath. It wasn't germane to the conversation. Likewise, it was encouraging somebody to lie under oath. It might have been justifiable. However, Republicans feel that they have a mandate about this. Republicans feel that they have a mandate about this, and uh, they decide, you know what, we're going to go through with impeachment. Uh, Clinton is formally impeached in 1998 uh, for lying under oath and um, obstruction of justice. That's, that's what they call the high crimes and misdemeanors. If you go over one uh, slide, you'll see the picture of the Washington Post where Clinton is impeached. Uh, Gingrich, who had actually been censored by Congress a little before, uh, starts leading the charge against Clinton, even though Gingrich has been involved in a six-year affair himself. Um, also, um, the guy who was going to become the House Speaker, Bob Livingston, he was from Louisiana. Uh, Bob Livingston actually had to resign, too. Um, if you see if that same headline, it says Livingston quits as the designated House Speaker, that's because uh, Larry Flint, uh, Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler Magazine, which is raunchy, it's like extreme pornography, he, if you go over one more slide, he put out an ad in the Washington Post offering a million dollars to anybody who could come out uh, saying that they've had an affair with a Republican member of Congress or just any member of Congress, but he really wanted Republican members of Congress. Basically, somebody comes out for Bob Livingston, uh, basically said, yes, I've been having an affair with Bob Livingston, who, who was married, and pretty much, that, that's kind of how this happens. Uh, Bill Clinton is only the second president uh, who has been impeached. Andrew Johnson got impeached. However, unlike Andrew Johnson, there's really no fear of Bill Clinton being removed in the Senate. Um, it goes to the Senate. He's not removed from office. It does make Clinton into a lame duck. Um, as you can see, if you go over one more slide, that's Clinton whenever he leaves. Uh, for the rest of his term in office, he is a lame duck. Doesn't really accomplish too much. Doesn't really try to do too much, to be honest. Uh, Clinton was lucky to have an amazingly good economy, uh, general peace, and even though there's some forays into Bosnia, things were pretty much good for Clinton. Uh, he leaves with exceptionally high approval ratings. Uh, even during the impeachment stuff, his improvement ratings actually went up. Uh, Republicans actually had lower approval ratings because of the impeachment than Clinton did. However, he's never able to sec uh, he's never able to shake the sexual scandal and a general feeling that half the country hated him. Now, that about does it for Clinton. However, we're going to talk a little bit about 90s culture. Remember, I'm a 90s guy. I'm a, I'm a culture guy. That's what I write about. And the 90s, if you go over one slide, they're kind of like the 50s, in that um, we have a solid economy and limited forward crises. 
Except the 90s were conceivably even better because there was no Russia and no outside looming threat, or so we thought. Still, there were issues that took up a great deal of interest outside of politics and the president, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about for a little while. Um, the 90s was a pretty good time to be a kid. Some people said it was a perfect time to be a kid. However, it wasn't as though we were free of anxiety and fear. Uh, for instance, uh, in 1991, uh, Rodney King was in a high-speed chase with police. It results in him being beaten by several cops. Uh, this is in Los Angeles. Uh, this is videotaped and shown on TV. Basically, uh, an outside observer is watching this, and all of a sudden he sees the cops beat up Rodney King. They're cops with clubs. Uh, this tape was shown all over, all over. The police are accused of police brutality. They, they go on trial. Uh, early on, they change venues. The uh, defense lawyers argue that the cops cannot get a fair trial in Los Angeles because the population of Los Angeles is biased against them. So they moved to Simi Valley, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. Um, basically, the cops are all acquitted. The cops are all acquitted. They're, they are found not guilty of these charges. This, set off, this sets off the biggest riots in U.S. history. Uh, this was not just about the Rodney King beating. I can tell you that. It was not just about the tape. There were much deeper issues going on with race and policing within Los Angeles. Um, issues between African Americans and um, law enforcement are nothing new. Uh, in fact, we still have issues about that going on. I'm not taking one side or the other. I'm just saying it's an issue, and people definitely still talk about it. Uh, the riots last for six days. Uh, they're primarily in African-American neighborhoods, places like South Central. Uh, about 53 people, 53 people died. 2,400 were injured. There were 7,000 fires, and 3,000 businesses were destroyed, and there's over a billion dollars in losses. Uh, the National Guard is finally called in to keep the peace. It's the biggest riot in U.S. history, and it's the biggest riot since the Watts riot, also in Los Angeles. Now, this shows that there are still major issues surrounding race and policing in the United States. Now, you do need to know about this, okay? Because the media, there was a media circus around this, and, you know, the big riots after the idea that uh, cops were acquitted. This is nothing <laughs> compared to the media circus that's about to happen due to the O.J. Simpson trial. Go over one more slide, you will see the white Bronco chase. Uh, O.J. Simpson was a former football player. He was pretty good as a pro. He won a Heisman in college. Uh, he had long since retired, and he was doing broadcasting stuff. Uh, unbeknownst to most people, he was he had some domestic abuse issues with his wife. Uh, later, his ex-wife, you know, they were married, then they got divorced because he would, you know, hit her and things like that. Her name is Nicole Brown. Uh, basically, in June of 1994, his ex-wife and a friend of hers were found murdered. Um... This is, uh, you know, it was unfortunate. O.J. was seen as a suspect because of the history of domestic violence. Also, there was some pretty strong circumstantial evidence, such as um, his DNA being on a glove that was found at the crime scene, and the other glove was found at his house. Uh, there were tire, uh, tire tracks which matched his white Ford Bronco. Uh, things like that. You know, fairly strong circumstantial evidence. Nothing to say that anybody was guilty, but enough for him to come in. Uh, you know, the, the cops tell him because he's a celebrity, like, hey, we're not going to put you in handcuffs, but you need to come to the police office. We want to ask you some questions. Uh, eventually, he's like, all right, I'm going to turn myself in. He's at his friend Robert Kardashian's house. Um, 
If the name Kardashian sounds familiar, it, it should, because that's, that's the same Kardashian family. Uh, he's supposed to turn himself in. However, before, you know, the cops, before he's able to turn himself in, he flees in a, this is where it gets weird, another identical white Ford Bronco owned by his friend Al Collins, who's another guy who is a football player. O.J. Simpson is not driving the car. Al Collins is the one driving the car. O.J.'s in the backseat with a gun to his head, uh, telling the cops, stay away from me. Uh, I just want to go see my mom for the last time before I kill myself. This, this chase is shown on TV. I remember watching it whenever I was a kid. Um, actually, we had to listen to the radio for a part of it because we didn't have a TV, and it was weird listening to a car chase on the radio. It's nowhere near as interesting as watching a car chase. Uh, this chase turns what could have been kind of a not-that-big story into, OMG, this is the biggest story ever. Uh, the trial itself is a huge event. It crosses the lines between race, celebrity, class, uh, money, everything you can imagine. Uh, the trial goes on forever. It makes household names out of ordinary folks. Uh, for instance, there's OJ and the Dream Team. That's part of his uh, lawyer team. Uh, let's see who you got. You got Johnny Cochran there holding OJ. He's probably the biggest profile name. Uh, you got Robert Kardashian standing right next to him. Uh, like I said, a lot of people become famous because of this. If you go to one slide, I found this picture. This is everybody who became famous because of the OJ trial who was somewhat associated with it. Uh, take a while to look at it. It's pretty much everybody gets involved with OJ because of this. Like, seriously. Like, that's the reason we know about the Kardashians and Paris Hilton and junk. It's mainly because of this OJ trial. This whole little world comes about. Uh, another example of just how it turns, like, random peoples into celebrities. Uh, let's go with Lance Ito. Lance Ito was the judge for this trial. Uh, he was known as a pretty boring judge, pretty straight-down-the-lace guy. Uh, however, during the trial on Jay Leno, they brought out the Dancing Itos. Uh, maybe I'll put a video up of the Dancing Itos. You know, they're, e they're easy enough to Google or YouTube. Just YouTube Dancing Itos. You'll see the Dancing Itos. That was a big honking deal. Now, when the verdict was uh, announced, O.J. was acquitted. O.J. was acquitted, and the country lost its damn mind. Uh, there were no riots like the Rodney King verdict. Uh, however, there was, it was pretty split down the middle. Some people thought that O.J. clearly did it. Uh, other people thought he didn't. There is a civil trial that happened later on, and O.J. was found liable for their deaths and was uh, forced to pay the Goldman family a bunch of money. Uh, Ron Goldman was the other person killed. Uh, the same time Nicole Brown was. Uh, O.J. hasn't paid that money off yet. O.J. actually went to jail for something unrelated, where he tried to break in and steal his Heisman Trophy, which he gave off. Um, I think O.J.'s still... Well, he's still around. He's still alive. He's living in Florida, I believe. Another thing that happens during the 90s, which does have to be mentioned, is Columbine. Actually, we just had the anniversary of it, the 21st anniversary of it, this past week. Uh, Columbine High was the first major school shooting to happen during the 90s. Happened in April of 1999. Um, I was a kid near the time period. I was actually in high school when this happened. Uh, school shootings had happened before. However, they were fairly rare. Uh, they also tended not to happen in, like, rich white suburbia, which is where this school shooting happened. Uh, the students had planted out immensely. Like, they planted out a lot. This becomes a huge fear as of the 90s and also going to the 2000s. The idea of school shootings kind of becoming a fact of life. Uh, we're going to close talking about 90s culture. Remember, I am the culture guy, so I have to talk about culture. Uh, way too much to cover, but there's a few trends I'm going to try to hit. 
Uh, music really either leaned into or out of commercialism and materialism of the genre, of the, of the decade. Uh, for instance, you have grunge music, which was personified by Nirvana and all and other bands from Seattle. Uh, grunge was seen to be like a Seattle thing. It was a rejection of the crass commercialism of something like glam rock. So if you look at grunge music, you have to compare them to something like Poison or the hair metal bands of the 80s who were just over and above in the excess. Uh, Nirvana, you know, they tried to strip down the sound. Weirdly enough, though, even though it was a rejection of commercialism, it becomes the standard of MTV. Uh, another one that kind of does this is gangster rap. Uh, gangster rap comes about in the late 80s, well, it comes uh, to national attention in the late 80s. Uh, it becomes seen as prophetic after the L.A. riots. Um, you know, N.W.A., uh, if you don't know what N.W.A. stands for, ask your parents, I'm not going to say it. Uh, <laughs> N.W.A. really, you know, they're, they're putting out records talking about how, like, you know, police are, me police are mean, Compton's a hard place to live. And all of a sudden, all these riots made it look like, oh my god, this is like the CNN of the hood. These guys are prophetic. Uh, gangster rap ultimately toys with commercialism, but is ultimately kind of in favor of it. Uh, personified, like I said, by things like uh, N.W.A. Also, if you go over one more page, you'll see Death Row Records. That's, uh, that's Snoop, that's Dr. Dre, that's Suge, that's uh, Tupac. Uh, Suge Knight is somebody who absolutely terrifies me. He's a former, uh, like, Football player, he's like 300-something pounds, 6'5". Uh, he's one of the few people who genuinely scares me. Uh, then you have somebody who really leans into the commercialism, something like Bad Boy Records, uh, personified by Sean Combs, Sean Puffy, Diddy, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he gets very big hits with uh, Biggie Smalls, Notorious B.I.G., Christopher Wallace. Uh, once Biggie and Tupac are killed... Uh, Sean Combs makes so much money off of Biggie's memory. So much money off of his memory. Uh, everybody in music in this time period makes so much money. I call this, if you go one more slide, shiny suit rap. This is just way much money, so much excess, so much fisheye lens, so much bright neon. Everybody's making so much money in music. That's one thing I'd say about music in the 90s. You know, it's not unusual for an album to go not even just platinum, but diamond, which is ten times platinum. Several albums go uh, diamond in this time period. Uh, probably the best examples of this are two local acts. Um, you got No Limit Records, uh, which is headed by Master P, which was based in New Orleans, and then moved to Baton Rouge for a while whenever I was a kid. Uh, I remember vividly one time going to the grocery store seeing Master P buying milk with his bodyguard. Um, Master P makes a freaking ton of money during this time period. Uh, Master P had a, a distribution deal where he got 85 cents on the dollar, which is absurd for a musician. Uh, absurd for an artist to get 85 cents on the dollar when it comes to their records. Um, you know, somebody like a, a Madonna or a Backstreet Boys, I'm trying to think of like a white pop act in this time period, they might get like 12 cents on the dollar, maybe 10 cents on the dollar. 12 if they're very lucky. Master P, because he owns so much of the mechanization, is able to get 85 cents on the dollar. So even though he's not selling as many records as like a, you know, teeny bopper band or even like a, as much as like, you know, um, Puff Daddy is, he's able to make way more money. Master P makes so much money in this time period. Uh, another local act that does that is Cash Money. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, there's a picture of something that I had when I was a kid. That is because uh, Master P got into other stuff as well. That is a Master P action figure, a Master P doll. If you pulled a string, he said, oh, nah, 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 nah. It was, 
it was hilarious. What what a weird time to be around. Uh, another one is the Williams Brothers. That's Cash Money Records. That's uh, Roland and uh, Brian Williams, aka Baby. Uh, they come later in the '90s. Also based in New Orleans. Also based in Baton Rouge for a small period of time too. They make a ton of ma- money as well. Uh, the internet is also being awkwardly incorporated into pop culture. Probably the best example of the '90s. Actually, the best example of the '90s in general. So if you go over one slide, is the movie Space Jam. Uh, Space Jam, if you check their website, it has not been updated since the movie came out. So, like, it is just like Google Space Jam website, you will find the website from 1996. That is exactly what the internet looks like in 1996. Uh, Space Jam is also representative of the 90s because it has Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is the personification of the 90s. You know, Air Jordan's become the shoes of the 90s. He becomes the biggest athlete in the world of the 90s. And it's, uh, it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's seen as positive, but also excessive, just because of the sheer amount of money. The sheer excess of it all is very 90s. I, I would say the 90s were a comically excessive time to be alive. And with that, that's where we're going to end it today. Uh, next class is going to be fairly short. It was just talked about uh, from the new millennium to about 2008. So with that, I uh, hope you all study well. This is Dr. Tully. Have a good one.